you said, Chairman Thompson, that today, almost two years after that fateful day in January 2021, that still Donald Trump and his allies and supporters are a clear and present danger to American democracy. That's not because of what happened on January 6th. It's because to this very day, the former president, his allies and supporters pledge that in the presidential election of 2024, if the former president successor as the Republican Party presidential candidate were to lose that election that they would attempt to overturn that 2024 election in the same way that they attempted to overturn the 2020 election but succeed in 2024 where they failed in 2020. I don't speak those words lightly. I would have never spoken those words ever in my life Accept that. That's what the former president and his allies are telling us. As I said in that New York Times op-ed, wherein I was speaking about the Electoral Count Act of 1887, former president and his allies are executing that blueprint uh, for 2024 in open and plain view of the American public. Season 2, Episode 17, The Hit on Pence. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the January 6, 2021 attack on our nation's capital. I'm Scott Kuhn. The introduction to the show was provided by noted conservative jurist um, Judge Lutig, uh, Judge Michael Lutig, who gave, I think, powerful and dominating testimony, although clearly he... Um, 
speaking very deliberately. Um, there were some questions about perhaps his health. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, cognitively very sharp and issuing a alarming warning cry, I think, to everyone who supports electoral democracy in the United States, that the coup attempt on January 6, 2021, is still ongoing and serves as a blueprint for the plan for Trumpists and other elements of the Republican Party, I mean, presumably, you know, at this point, they're mainly one and the same, moving forward, may plan to implement in the 2024 presidential election, uh, and, you know, for that matter, even in the midterms. Uh, even though the Electoral Count Act doesn't apply to congressional elections, nonetheless, the, it's the kind of malfeasance and corrupt plans to attempt to use uh, holes in laws and procedures to attempt to overturn election results simply because the people who are taking part in it don't like the outcome. This is going to be yet another quick episode, yet another in my series of more rapid episodes in response to the January 6th committee hearings. I'm not even going to do the numbers again, I'm just going to go right on about it. So the third hearing, and again, I'm not counting the hearing last summer, right? Uh, we were starting the, nu the numbering of these, uh, not with the hearing with the four officers, but rather the ones that have been happening since June 9th. The third hearing is all about the pressure campaign to corruptly influence the Vice President of the United States to exert a power that he does not have, the ability to determine the outcome of presidential elections. And I think that that's the first thing that you, you ought to note here. In this hearing, consistently, instead of talk about the ability of the President to preside over the tally of electoral votes and what that means, committee members and witnesses consistently described what Trump wanted to have Pence do, and what he wanted him to do was to determine the outcome of the presidential election. So I think that, that was, that's a, an accurate description, and it's a good example of successful framing. I know there are people who say, well, you know, Democrats are terrible at messaging. Well, you should at least take note of times where they, in fact, are using successful messaging. And I, th I think they've legally, they've got, you know, they are able to support this. And they supported thoroughly for two hours and 47 minutes. The committee went on, I, I think in some sense, in part because of Judge Lutig's rather halting demeanor. And I know there have been some question about, why aren't all these hearings in prime time? I think this, prime, this hearing would not have worked in prime time. Um, some people have said that this, that, you know, if other hearings have gotten an A, this one maybe got a B. I probably agree with that. Nonetheless, I think that it was effective. And I think a big part of that is, you know, this successful framing of it, wherein, you know, it's not just a failure to certify or presiding. It is basically determining the outcome of a presidential election. And that is what Trump and Eastman were trying to get Mike Pence to do. And that is what he refused to do. So an accurate framing that shows really the, you know, cuts to the core of what they were trying to do on January 6th and before, but also, again, you know, gets through sort of the, the legal nonsense uh, and, and some of the, quite frankly, rather sort of lawyeristic kind of language and legalese that, um, in some sense, dominated the hearing. That firm, consistent framing, I think, is helpful to the work of the committee.
So that's the first part of what it entailed. And I should mention that that's, that's the headline, right? If you go on C-SPAN, that is the headline for this committee hearing. And there's a reason why that that's the case. Um, I've mentioned it before, but Liz Cheney basically released to the press a blueprint for an outline uh, of all the themes that they're going to hit in each of these public hearings. And the ordering may have changed somewhat with the cancellation, rather postponement, of the hearing that was supposed to have taken uh, place on Wednesday. Nonetheless, um, this is the what they called a sophisticated seven-to-part plan to overturn the 2020 presidential election and obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. And so we are on step three. Uh, the, this hearing was basically step three of the plan, which Cheney describes as President Trump corruptly pressured Vice President Pence to refuse to count certified electoral votes in violation of the U.S. Constitution and the law. Now, again, you know, kind of buries the lead, uh, to my mind. You know, part of the, the scheme includes the fact that Trump sent a mob to the Capitol to get Mike Pence and possibly murder him. And that indeed is what occupied the second half of the hearing. I don't want to dwell too much on it. I think they should have led to the second half and then gone into the first half. It is what it is. Um, but second half of the hearing was all about the danger that Pence faced as the Trumpist mob stormed the Capitol. It's about how, you know, they're ch chanting, hang Mike Pence, uh, when there's a gallows erected on Capitol grounds and there's hundreds of attackers looking for Mike Pence and chanting that they want to hang him. That, of course, you know, this information is not new, right? I mean, we knew about that day one. But again, these hearings are for the public, people who are not as alert to the danger to electoral democracy uh, than regular listeners to this podcast will be. And so I think that that part of the messaging was effective. I just would like to see the order flipped. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to criticize the committee too much. Uh, I mean, once again, they, they got it backwards. Um, I thought it was a very informative seminar on the process for tallying presidential electoral vote totals under the Electoral Count Act of 1887. And you had excellent um, professors, you know, in effect, in, the, uh, in Judge Ludig and Greg Jacob, uh, Pence's top lawyer, that dominated the first half of the show. Um, and look, I was happy with that, right? For political science nerds like me, uh, I'm sure for constitutional law people, for a lot of people in law schools all over the country, uh, the first half of this show is like a, a, a free seminar uh, that you're taking for no credit and, uh, you know, no, no, it was just free. And, and so in that sense, it was, it was great. I'm not sure polemically it worked, although I do think that, you know, again, the, the intro to the show, I think that was a pretty good soundbite, even though the delivery was uh, halting, because I don't think, I don't think Judge Ludwig is faking. I sincerely think that he is missing a step. Perhaps he has some form of mild aphasia. But again, you know, with regard to, um, you know, how pregnant people are, or whether or not they're giving birth, or whether they, you know, but I, I think we can just get past that. Hopefully. Um, but, you know, again, Judge Luke is a great witness in terms of 
people talk about, well, you know, anyone who opposes Donald Trump is a rhino, right? They're not MAGA, they're swamp creatures. And Judge Michael Ludig, of course, was a one of the leading figures in conservative jurisprudence in the United States back when Donald Trump was still a registered Democrat, right? So, you know, it's hard to question him on those grounds. And again, you have to remember what they were there to do. And what they were there to do was to show that John Eastman's claims and his whole scheme was predicated upon a lie. He knew that these schemes were fraudulent in nature. He knew that they wouldn't stand up in court. He knew that they were illegal and unconstitutional. And he knew that, you know, this pressure campaign ultimately um, winds up culminating the attempt to, to, to hang Mike Pence, right? So, you know, I mean, it would be great if they, they'd done it the other way around, but again, you know, pretty effective. And it just highlights the, the role that John Eastman played in this unconstitutional scheme he concocted to obstruct the uh, electoral certification and the inauguration of Joe Biden as the 46th president of the United States of America. Of course, uh, much of what occurred in the hearing hinged upon uh, Eastman's unique interpretation of the Electoral Count Act of 1887. And I don't really want to replicate the committee's, uh, I, I think, a little bit of a mistake in taking this uh, a bit too far, right? Uh, but the Electoral Count Act of 1887, in an ideal world, could be covered in five minutes. Uh, in Introduction to American Politics. So you have the Hayes-Tilden election of 1876 that results ultimately in a deadlocked Congress. And the decision of what to do basically winds up ending Reconstruction. Uh, there's the, the bargain, the deal that is struck where Republicans get the presidency, that Rutherford B. Hayes gets to win, despite losing the popular vote by over, I think, 200,000 votes, um, which was a lot back then. And uh, Democrats get in Reconstruction. So federal troops are withdrawn from the South and uh, thus begins yet another long era of systematic uh, oppression and you know, the institution of rules that basically deny the equal rights of African Americans uh, throughout much of the South, well, throughout the entirety of the South. And so um, this was problematic in many ways. And the other subsequent elections were also close. This issue kept coming up. Uh, the electoral numbers were such that it, they needed to find a solution. And the solution they arrived at was the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which itself is problematic because there's a process that is briefly uh, outlined in the Constitution, um, and you're trying to amend that process through a law that, you know, honestly, the vehicle properly might have been a constitutional amendment. And, of course, John Eastman is keenly aware of all this, keenly aware of all the literature on the weaknesses of the Electoral Count Act of 1887. And, uh, you know, the answer that we've had, of course, it has been through the norms, the norm of loser's consent. Uh, so, you know, the Vice President of the United States is on the ticket. It makes no sense that he would have any power 
in determining the outcome, and in fact, the, the precedent that has been set, um, as Judge Ludig noted, and uh, Mr. Jacob noted, has been to for the vice president to basically uphold the rule of law, uphold electoral democracy, and to reject um, various challenges to electoral votes and to follow the will of the people, right? So our system, the, the inadequacies of the law are known, but the system of norms have bolstered that, right? The system of norms have basically propped up. Okay, basically... The vice president, you know, isn't going to try to use this as some kind of pretext to nullify the election because everybody knows that that would be obviously corrupt and against the intent of the law and against the, the clear intent of the 12th Amendment of the Constitution. Basically, under the, the 12th Amendment, the vice president of the United States uh, is, is opening the ballots and is basically presiding, right, as a presiding officer, not a deciding officer, doesn't have a vote unless, you know, it is a divided Congress. But again, this is, this is supposed to be pro forma. This is supposed to be a process that is going to work kind of automatically, if you will. And it has worked. It has worked rather well, historically. Uh, so, you know, Hubert Humphrey, uh, Al Gore, Joe Biden, uh, Vice President Pence all wind up supporting the will of the people and not, you know, uh, using the Electoral Count Act as some kind of pretext. And Eastman instead is, you know, basically weaponizing it, right? And because there's really no remedy under it, basically saying, well, the solution is that the, the current president stays in power, which is so contrary to the Constitution and the Electoral Count It is contrary to everything, uh, and it makes no sense whatsoever but yet, this was what they were trying to do. And, you know, uh, someone who is thoughtful about this, right? I mean, again, they, they go through it in the testimony. Um, you know, Eastman knows that this is not the solution, right? That this doesn't make any sense at all in any sane or rational ordering or any sense of historical practice to, you know, have the current president stay in power because of alternate slates of electors, however certified. It's absolutely absurd. And so much of the time was, was spent on the, the intricacies of the Electoral Count Act, which we know is deficient and perhaps lines up well with the legislative purpose of the committee. Perhaps one of the things that we can do ultimately out of this is to find a way to either reform the Electoral Count Act or uh, perhaps amend the Constitution, although... I'm not sure I want to hand over the power to the amend the Constitution to, because I, I think that there's opportunities uh, for, you know, I, I don't know if that's a, a kettle of worms that, you know, we might wind up with something that's worse than the current process. Um, but nonetheless, you know, the great example uh, is Al Gore, right? So you have Al Gore gaveling down objections to the uh, 2000 election results election which, you know, he's at the top of the ticket, right? And so Pence actually references this. Uh, Jacob testifies to the fact that, you know, this is one of Pence's first experiences as a member of Congress, that, you know, he saw Al Gore basically uphold the rule of law and uphold the will of the people. 
And so I, I do wonder whether or not that impression on Pence's part, saying, wait a minute, if I do this, if I violate the Constitution, am I less than Al Gore? Al Gore ultimately did what was needed and nobody really commented on it. I mean, they did. People noted a, a little bit. Um, you know, and it was a very acrimonious time with Bush v. Gore, uh, which was wrongly decided, in my view. Nonetheless, you know, uh, Mike Pence, there's the example of Al Gore yeah, that's provided to him, and he's got Judge Ludig telling him to do the right thing, and he's got Dan Quayle telling him to do the right thing. And so ultimately he does the right thing, even though, again, eh, I, you know, I don't think he comes out of this looking great. I know that there's some people who are trying to hold him up as a hero. I don't know if we should hold people up as heroes uh, for doing the thing that should be automatic. You know, nonetheless, I guess nowadays you take your allies where you can find them uh, because electoral democracy in America is at stake. So it's not my intent to turn this into a lecture about the Electoral Count Act of 1887, but again, basically all you need to know is that what Eastman was doing was to use known deficiencies in the 12th Amendment of the Constitution, the Electoral Count Act of 1887, uh, as kind of Judah, right? Weaponizing these known deficiencies in the law that were nonetheless bolstered by political practice and norms in order to make, you know, give us the regular and normal and ordinary functionings of democracy, he's turning those against it. And by the way, this is pure Carl Schmitt. Now, I don't, I don't know, I, I don't really want to get into that too much here, but this is, this is positively Schmittian. This is an inherent weakness of democracy. And when you have, when you are beholden to the rule of law and the enemies of democracy are not, it's a weakness. And so if you have someone who uh, is a legal scholar and a jurist, you know, I mean, the, the analogies are staggering. And uh, William Scheuermann actually has done an article on this. You know, I thought about this in, in, in these terms. You know, Carl Schmitt basically uh, is to Hitler as um, John Eastman is to Trump, right? So, you know, good, good for you, John Eastman. You are, you are basically the new Carl Schmitt because you weaponize known weaknesses and rule of law um, as uh, Schmidt did in the, the case against Prussia uh, where basically um, he was able to eviscerate the uh, Prussian government uh, in another way of you know, basically attacking the legality of the German legal system uh, in the state of Prussia, the largest and most important state in terms of Hitler's rise to power. And you know, that's something analogous to what John Eastman does in this instance. So don't want to turn into a whole seminar on that, um, even though, because we just had one, right, if you watched it. But I'd like to turn uh, quickly to what Mike Pence's top lawyer said with regard to his conversations with Mike Pence about the subject. Quote, the problem we had and the John Eastman raised in our discussions was that we had all seen that in Congress in 2000, in 2004, and in 2016, there had been objections raised to various states, and those had even been debated in 2004. And so here you have an amendment that says nothing about objecting or rejecting, and yet we did have some recent practice of that happening. 
within the terms of the Electoral Count Act. So we started with that text. And I recall in my discussion with the Vice President, he said, I can't wait to go to heaven and meet the framers and tell them the work you did in putting together our Constitution is a work of genius. Thank you, it was divinely inspired. There is one sentence I would like to talk to you a little bit about. End quote. Um, interesting comments there. Of course, you know, I see the Constitution a little bit differently than Pence, right? The, the legitimacy of the Constitution comes from the people, not... It's not a document that uh, claims to be divinely inspired with regard to the divine right of kings. Madison is a rationalist. Um, it is a clockwork, uh, Enlightenment-era system that is mechanistic with its system of checks and balances. Uh, it is not relating, you know, or basing its legitimacy in any way on divine authority. That is something that, quite frankly, Christo-fascists have grafted onto it. Um, you know, ours is the shortest constitution, uh, shortest written constitution in the world, the earliest written constitution in the world. It is basically the operating system or a democracy, and it is held up well, but it's held up well because of the supporting system of norms and practices. Uh, it has not because the document itself is perfect and divinely inspired. I, I'm sorry, but it's not, and this shows it, right? Uh, you know, I mean, for over 150 years, I think, the Constitution didn't actually even say, for example, that if the president dies, the vice president um, becomes the, the president. That was the actual practice. That was the norm. It's not actually what the Constitution said. They had to amend the Constitution to get it to say that. The original language was simply, assumes the duties of the presidency. So our Constitution is not as perfect as Mike Pence seems to think it is. And going to some of the new things that we've learned, um, I did think it, there was this interesting quote that I don't know that the media has paid too much attention to, but there is a videotape testimony from Jared Kushner. Liz Cheney asked him a question. Quote, Jared, are you aware of instances where Pat Cipollone threatened to resign? Kushner. I, I kind of, like I said, my interest at the time was trying to get as many pardons done. And I know that, you know, he was always, him in the team or always, was always saying, oh, we're going to resign. We're not going to be there if this happens, if that happens. So I kind of took it to be whining, just to be honest with you, end quote. Now, I know I talked about this in the last time. I think it's interesting that they, this is the second time they've used this quote, but this time, I'm not sure if they edited it. I'd have to go back and look at it. Um... But this time includes this other part. I, th I don't think that they put this in the first time. Maybe I just didn't notice it. My interest at the time was trying to get as many pardons done. So, you know, Kushner is, is basically involved in the scheme to, I don't know, corruptly sell pardons, maybe, allegedly. People might be saying, um, you know, but he's working on, on this pardon issue rather than, you know, being at all concerned with uh, the resignation of top attorneys from the Trump administration, Trump White House, and the Department of Justice. Um, which, again, as we talked about, right, Trump was perfectly happy to name acting people. He liked having acting people who were beholden to him. Uh, in an ordinary administration, having that many attorneys resign would be seen as a catastrophe. In the Trump administration, it was seen 
as an opportunity. But kind of interesting, you know, pardons, I think, are going to come up again with regard to the January 6th uh, series of hearings. Another bit that I thought was interesting was, again, we talked uh, last time about how uh, Trump was relying on drunk Rudy and, you know, not listening to his attorneys. Um, there was a quote that I found that was, was striking to me with regard to Rudy Giuliani and his support for Eastman's unconstitutional scheme to overthrow the United States uh, government. Notice, by the way, yeah, I'll try to say allegedly about a lot of things. I'm, I'm willing to go out, even though John Eastman is, for the moment, an attorney, right? You know, that was an illegal and unconstitutional scheme to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. And I'm not even going to say allegedly. It's what he did. Anyway, Rudy Giuliani said, quote, It is perfectly appropriate, given the questionable constitutionality of the Election Counting Act of 1887, that the Vice President can cast aside that he can do what a president called Jefferson did when he was vice president, end quote. He can't even get the name of the Electoral Count Act of 1887 right. The Election Counting Act of 1887. And again, first off, you know, he's trying to use the, the act of something that was enacted in 1887 to justify what Jefferson did in the election of 800. 1800, excuse me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But again, Trump is relying on the legal advice of someone who doesn't even know what the Electoral Count Act of 1887 is called properly, and yet Giuliani is giving his opinion, his learned legal opinion, on the Electoral Count Act of 1887, calling it the Election Counting Act of 1887, and everybody claps. Also, a quick word on the format of the hearings. Um, you, you notice, of course, Chairman Thompson and Vice Chair Cheney are going to be playing prominent roles in each of these hearings as is appropriate. And, of course, uh, a lot of the heavy lifting or a lot of the other work is being done by individual members. Um, this, for this hearing, of course, it was Pete Aguilar of California. And he was directing questions at Greg Jacob with regard to the Eastman scheme. And, again, nothing new here. But it pointed to something that I think is, is kind of telling. So I'll let uh, Representative Aguilar introduce this bit of recorded testimony. And here's what Dr. Eastman said in his speech at the Ellipse on January 6th. That, of course, again, nothing new. That is from John Eastman's speech at the Ellipse on January 6th. Nonetheless, I, I think it did not only, you know, it was a, a very effective contrast with Greg Jacob and uh, Michael Ludig, Judge Ludig, right? Because, you know, Eastman is someone who's taken part in this case, and he's acting like, you know, he's, uh, he's Alex Jones up there, right? And just, just the narcissism on this, of this guy I think that the, the visual contrast, the auditory contrast of what John Eastman was publicly saying in this case, where again, you know, he's supposed to be 
uh, a, a legal scholar. He was presenting himself as a legal scholar. To my mind, he came off as an unhinged loon. And so it was left to Representative Aguilar, of course, uh, to refute this, and he used a uh, lovely bit of evidence, a draft letter to the president from October of 2020, and there was the idea floated that the vice president could determine which electors to count at the joint session of Congress. And here's what Aguilar had to say about that. Quote, But the person writing in blue eviscerates that argument. The person who wrote the comments in blue wrote, quote, The Twelfth Amendment only says that the president of the Senate opens the ballots in the joint session, and then in the passive voice that the votes shall then be counted. End quote. The comments in blue further state, Nowhere does it suggest that the president of the Senate gets to make the determination on his own. End quote. Well, in the, the internal quote. And he asks the question, Judge Lutig, does it surprise you that the author of those comments in blue was, in fact, John Eastman? Uh, to which Judge Ludwig responds, yes, it does, Congressman. Um, and, and he goes on. But, again, remarkable, right? Eastman knows, well, it's not remarkable, I mean, but Eastman knows that his argument is nonsensical. Uh, and, in fact, that Eastman, just a couple of months prior to January 6th, was rebutting his, the old argument that he would wind up making, ultimately, saying that the vice president had the opportunity and the, the power under the Electoral Count Act, to determine the presidency of the United States. Another very effective moment, I think, was when um, Representative Aguilar really showed in what bad faith Eastman's arguments were offered. Um, you know, essentially, if the law means anything, it means the same thing for different people. And yet, uh, there's, you know, Eastman trips himself up. I mean, this is just basic. Uh, but he totally and completely, uh, in this testimony from Greg Jacob, shows how fraudulent his own position is by applying different positions uh, to the Trump administration versus, let's say, Al Gore or Kamala Harris. say whether he would want other vice presidents such as Al Gore after the 2000 election or Kamala Harris after the 2024 election to have the power to decide the outcome of the election. So this was one of the many points that we discussed on January 5th. Um, he had come into that meeting trying to persuade us that there was some validity to his theory. I viewed it as my objective to persuade him acknowledge he was just wrong. And I thought this had to be one of the most powerful arguments. I mean, John, back in 2000, you weren't jumping up and saying Al Gore had this authority to do that. You would not want Kamala Harris to be able to exercise that kind of authority in 2024 when I hope Republicans will win the election. And I know you hope that too, John. And he said, absolutely. Al Gore did not have a basis to do it in 2000. Kamala Harris shouldn't be able to do it in 2024, but I think you should do it today. So, obviously pretty telling. The law is supposed to be neutral with regard to uh, who the parties are. But Eastman is clearly of the opinion that no, no, we have one set of rules for Republicans and one set of rules for Democrats. So that's apparently the dividing line right now 
between, you know, Republicans and Democrats, right? And you have people like Mr. Jacob and Judge Ludig who are willing to stand up and say, hey, let's all play by the same set of rules. And I'm not seeking to turn these guys in, into heroes in this sense, but nonetheless, that's the dividing line. I think they are in a minority in the Republican Party right now, right? But at least there are still a few Republican attorneys and noted judges who are willing to stand up and say, but actually, maybe in electoral democracy under the rule of law, we should have one set of rules that applies to everybody rather than one set of rules for Republicans and one set of rules for Democrats. Now, one of the things that came out here that's relatively new and probably not surprising uh, is just the, the, the nature of the abusive relationship between Trump and Pence. Uh, we go once again to the, the record. This will be Greg Jacob uh, and Representative Aguilar and uh, several other witnesses to include Mr. Hirschman and Ivanka Trump speaking to uh, the Trump-Pence call where Trump is heatedly and animatedly asking Pence to do something unconstitutional. Putting the, the, the vice president had finalized his statement overnight. We were in the process of proofing it so that we could get that out. Um, and we were told that a call had come in from the president. The vice president stepped out of the room to take that call, and no staff went with him. The president had several family members with him in the Oval that morning for that call. I'd like to show you what they and others told the select committee about that call, along with never-before-seen photographs of the president on that call from the National Archives. When I got in, uh, somebody called me and said that the family and others were in the Oval, and do I want to come up? So I, I went upstairs. Uh, and who do you recall being in the Oval Office? Don Jr., Eric, Laura, Kimberly, Lee Meadows was there. At some point, Vanka came in. It wasn't a specific, a formal discussion. It was very sort of loose and casual. So then you said at some point there's a telephone conversation between the president and the vice president. Is that correct? Yes. When I entered the office the second time, he was on the telephone who I later found out to be, was the, the vice president. Could you hear the vice president or only hear the president's end? Only hear the president's end. And at some point it started off as a conversation with everything and then became heated. The conversation was was pretty heated. I think till it became somewhat, you know, left. I don't think anyone was paying attention to it initially. Did you hear any part of the phone call, even if just this, the end that the president was speaking from? I did, yes. All right, what'd you hear? So as I was dropping off the note, um, I, I, my memory, I remember hearing the word wimp. Either he called him a wimp. I don't remember if he said, you are a wimp, you'll be a wimp. Wimp is the word I remember. It's also been reported that the president said to the vice president that something to the effect that you don't have the courage to make a hard decision. Or she, I don't remember exactly, it was something like that. Yeah. You're being, like being, you're not tough enough to make the call. It was a different tone than I'd heard him take um, with the vice president before. Did Ms. Trump share with you any more details about what had happened 
or any details about what had happened in the Oval Office that morning. That her dad had just had an upsetting conversation with the vice president. Do you recall anything about her demeanor either during the meeting or when you encountered her at Dan Scavino's office? I don't remember specifically. I mean, I think she was uncomfortable over the fact that there was obviously interaction between the two of them. Something to the effect, this is, the wording's wrong. I made the wrong decision four or five years ago. And the, the word that she relayed to you that the president called the vice president, I apologize for being impolite, but do you remember what she said her father called him? The P word? So apparently very animated. As I said, uh, the Trump called the president, the vice president of the United States, Mike Pence, a wimp and a pussy. Of course, again, he, you know, I think whatever you think of Mike Pence, right, uh, being a wimp would, he would have been a wimp if he'd actually given in to Trump's bullying at this point. But again, something new. Uh, we knew, you know, that this relationship at this point was rather strained. We, of course, know that this president is a vulgarian uh, and a bully, and so it's not surprising to see him deploy these kinds of tactics, perhaps, against his own vice president. And, you know, he's not the first person, right? We know that Nixon was a potty mouth. LBJ liked to talk about his a penis, but... Uh, you know, just another great example again of what it must have been like in the Trump White House for Mike Pence and I think for a lot of other people. Now, they also detailed um, a pretty good timeline, I think, of the progress uh, from the attackers from the first breach of the building to the, what appears to be a very near run-in with Vice President Pence who was moved at 2.24 p.m. by the Secret Service down uh, to his office across the hall. And other uh, staffers who were with him at that time, such as Chris Hodgson and Sarah Matthews, were testifying you know, as to just what the conditions in the building were like at that time. And this, again, was following you know, chants of hang Mike Pence and tweets, uh, repeated tweets, uh, coming from President Trump that were basically, you know, calling for Pence's head, you know, decrying Pence for not having done, quote, the right thing, i.e. the illegal and unconstitutional thing, as well as some very effective uh, clips of the things that the, the attackers were actually saying, uh, which I, I won't play, just the audio quality. Is going to be even, you know, even harsher, and I'm, I'm apparently having uh, problems with my clips today. Apparently, the closest that the mob came to Vice President Pence was at the point when the Secret Service was moving him from his office in the Senate down into the basement garage, and uh, there's testimony from Mr. Jacob uh, and Mr. Uh, Representative Aguilar. Uh, basically asserting that they came within about 40 feet of the vice president. And Representative Aguilar had this to say, quote, Make no mistake about the fact that the vice president's life was in danger. A recent court filing by the Department of Justice explains that a confidential informant from the Proud Boys 
told the FBI that the Proud Boys would have killed Mike Pence if given a chance. This witness, whom the FBI refers affidavit refers to as W1, stated that other members of the group talked about the things they did that day and that anyone they got their hands on would have killed, they would have killed, including Nancy Pelosi. W1 further stated that members of the Proud Boys said that they would have killed Mike Pence if given a chance. We understand that congressional leaders and others were evacuated from the Capitol complex to the, during the attack. And then they show uh, what happens after Mike Pence was evacuated from the Senate. So that was new. Um, although, again, you know, the idea that Mike, Mike Pence narrowly escaped uh, isn't particularly new. Uh, and this confidential informant, you know, who said that uh, Pence and Pelosi certainly would have been killed, basically any member of Congress they got their hands on would have been killed, uh, was also new. Although this, again, you know, I mean, take it what you will, if uh, so many of the Proud Boys haven't been arrested yet, if they've actually touched a, a hair on a single member of Congress, you know, I, even the current Justice Department uh, would have probably gone after them as a terrorist organization by this point. And they, there wouldn't be so many of them, you know, winning pre-trial release and, and other nonsense such as that. And it makes it clear, I think, that, you know, perhaps it is, it's time to look at gang enhancements. It's time to look at domestic ter terrorism charges, even though that's not an offense. Uh, terrorism, you know, it can be an offense, right? And this, uh, basically, the weaponized mob uh, looking for Pelosi and Pence and others, uh, could be construed as something for which the president himself could be held criminally responsible. Uh, Charles Manson didn't perpetrate any of the killings, right? But, you know, here you have the president basically saying, go get them, and the mob goes and get them, gets them, you know, or tries to. Uh, that is highly problematic. And, you know, perhaps the Department of Justice may want to pursue legal consequences for this, because even though I think maybe the case on some of the financial crimes might be stronger, this is behavior that we want to deter in our political system. We do not want to have weaponized mobs roaming the Capitol looking for members of the legislative and the executive branches of government. That shouldn't be a thing in our politics if we are, are to have meaningful rule of law in this country. So I thought that was pretty effective, as well as the already known material from uh, the, the basement garage, right? The moment where Pence is taken to his car, is scored to the car, and then refuses to get in the car because he doesn't want to leave. Interestingly, a lot of the speculation around this has revolved around the question of whether or not um, Mike Pence thought that they would take him to some undisclosed location and do who, who knows what, that perhaps he didn't trust his Secret Service detail. One element that I think is, is interesting is the other uh, prospect, where he was concerned about the, what it would look like to have the Vice President of the United States fleeing from the Capitol at the moment when he's supposed to be certifying the electoral votes. Uh, and that idea is one I think is, it merits consideration that he, this, the optics of this would, in fact, be terrible, and he did not want to be seen fleeing the Capitol at this point in time. Um, 
which was an idea that, you know, I hadn't really thought about before. Uh, and so, you know, I think it is, you know, yet another possible explanation as opposed to the idea that, the, you know, they were going to take him uh, to, and, you know, behold him in an undisclosed location. Another interesting detail, uh, based on testimony from Mr. Jacob, um, was this. Here's a question from Mr. Aguilar, quote, while the vice president made several calls to check in on the safety of others, it was his own life that was in great danger. Mr. Jacob, did Donald Trump ever call the vice president to check on his safety? Greg Jacob, he did not. Pete Aguilar, Mr. Jacob, how did the vice president and Mrs. Pence react to that? Greg Jacob, with frustration. So, yeah, you know, that that is really... That, that kind of sums it up, right? You know, how do you know that Trump was in no danger? Well, they didn't, they didn't uh, take him to an undisclosed location. You know, how you know Mike Pence was in danger? Well, Trump didn't call him. How do you know that Trump was instrumentalizing the mob against him? Uh, again, he didn't call him. He did not really wish uh, Mike Pence well that day. Another t telling detail um, that was new, at least to me anyway, maybe it's come out before in some tragic emails, that I hadn't seen was an email exchange uh, between um, John, sorry, this is not John, Greg Jacob and uh, John Eastman, which again, uh, you know, was part of what makes Jacob a very compelling witness. I mean, he was literally participating in, uh, with this. And you, you had this conversation where he's saying, well, thanks to your bullshit, you know, you uh, wound up in the life of the vice president and all the rest of that. Um, and Eastman doubles down. So at 11.44 p.m. Uh, on January 6th, Eastman is still going on with his fraudulent scheme. And he writes, quote, So now that the precedent has been set that the Electoral Count Act is not quite so sacrosanct as was previously claimed, I implore you to consider one more relatively minor violation and adjourn for 10 days to allow the legislatures to finish their investigations. End quote. So, again, the, the idea that, you know, what was the reason why it wasn't done in a timely manner? Well, the Capitol was attacked by a mob that had been orchestrated by the president. And, you know, that's, this shows the link, I believe, between the goal of the obstruction of the official proceeding and John Eastman's awareness of it, right? That basically the idea, and this is an absurd idea, but the idea that the remedy under the Electoral Count Act is to basically nullify the uh, election if the Electoral Count is not certified as it's supposed to be in a timely manner on January 6th. That is absolute and complete nonsense, of course, but if it had worked, that is absolutely what John Eastman and Donald John Trump would have asserted. They would have said, well, the certification is botched, therefore, I am God Emperor for life. And of course, uh, you know, great Jacob isn't the only one who got a call, right? Now, this was actually something that came out before the committee hearing. Uh, nonetheless, I think that this bit from Eric Hirschman is also telling, I'll let uh, Mr. Aguilar, Representative Aguilar, introduced this. White House Attorney Eric Hirschman testified that the next day, January 7th, 
you received a call from Dr. Eastman. Here is Mr. Hirschman's account of that call. The day after, uh, Eastman, I don't remember why he called me, and he, or he texted me or called me, wanted to talk with me, and he said he couldn't reach others. And he started to ask me about something dealing with Georgia, preserving something potentially for appeal. Uh, and I said to him, are you out of your effing mind? Right? He said, I, I only want to hear two words coming out of your mouth for now on. Orderly transition. And I said, I don't want to hear any other effing words coming out of your mouth, no matter what, other than orderly transition. Repeat those words to me. And I said, Eventually, he said, orderly transition. I said, good, John. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great FN criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. So, again, why does all this matter? Ultimately, I think that one of the possible criminal, criminal violations that could be pursued against people like Mark Meadows, uh, people such as Rudy Giuliani, certainly John Eastman, and perhaps even President Trump himself, is the fact that this fraudulent elector scheme itself, as we will see, uh, was it was an attempt to defraud the United States. That they met in secret, which is not how it was normally done, to declare themselves as alternate slates of electors, without the authority of state governments. And all this is happening way past the safe harbor date. This is all happening way past any legitimate basis for legal appeal. This is all extra-constitutional, and illegal. And so we saw, again, the same kinds of details, you know, such as Giuliani being drunk, right? Drunk, you know. The same kind of details, I think, will serve as the kind of the public hook, you know, the fact that Trump is calling Pence uh, a wimp and a pussy. Um, more significant facts, such as, uh, the you know, you had members of the mob getting within as few as 40 feet of Trump. Yet, I think, compelling, if not slightly long-winded testimony um, from Judge Ludig, who, again, is there to lend credibility with, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if most conservatives know who legal scholars are, uh, especially conservative judges, uh, but in that world, anyway, Judge Ludig, Michael Ludig, is a prominent figure, and so, you know, if we care about the rule of law, it ought to be significant. And so, if you're in these stupid arguments with your, uh, your uncle at Thanksgiving, uh, this is something that you can point out. You know, just, well, actually, Michael Ludig completely disagrees with your absurd position. Because prior to 2020, you know, no one would have taken up this position. And even, in fact, John Eastman himself in October of 2020 believes that this is an absurd position. And again, that's another significant thing. I think they did a great job at showing that John Eastman and many other people involved all realized that the scheme that they were doing was unconstitutional and also you know, illegal. And you know, again, if we're going to look at the possibility of some kind of criminal case against the Department with from the Department of Justice, which I know many of you are probably despairing of, and my own pet theory has been that this will you know, come after the public hearings, we will see, um, you know, 
then this is one of the possible crimes. So that's why this matters. This matters because it demonstrates that all parties had uh, an awareness of the nature and the wrongfulness of their acts. Just as all parties knew that the big lie was in fact a lie, the election experts said, no, you're wrong, you need to concede. And in this instance, the legal experts said, no, you're wrong, you need to engage in the orderly and peaceful transfer of power. And Trump and the figures around him all decided to stage a self-coup instead of following the Constitution, instead of following the law. And it ought to be inconceivable that legal consequences for the parties involved do not ensue from this. Legal consequences need to be imposed because if we are willing to impose legal consequences on people for having a dime bag, we should impose legal consequences for people who seek to overthrow the government, impede and obstruct the peaceful transfer of power, and end electoral democracy in America. All right. Uh, next hearing, of course, will be on Monday uh, at, I believe, 1 o'clock p.m. So look forward to that. And uh, again, thank you so much for your, li your listenership. And I hopefully will uh, get to talk to you again sometime soon.